My name again is Travis, if you're just joining us, and we are continuing, uh, wrapping up, almost done, with a Advent, a Christmas series that we've been going through, through the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, that we've been calling The Return of the King. Uh, using Matthew's discussion, his telling of the coming of Christ as the announcement of this one who would come and make all these changes that his people and even we are so deeply longing for in our lives. Matthew's announcing the one who would come as a ruler, not just as a friend, as someone who is God and king who would come to provide for his people, to change what they could not change in themselves. And last week we focused on uh, the promised king coming into contact with the powers of the world around him. And we saw how when he came into contact with him, those powers started to change and to move around him. That There was something about him that impacted everything around him. And we saw through that that Matthew was trying to lift our eyes to, to not settle for just a whitewashed, friendly, non-supernatural Jesus. Matthew is pointing out to us that unless Jesus does things like change everyone and everything around him, unless stars move because he comes into existence, you are wasting your time. Matthew is saying the only thing worth your time, the only thing worth you believing in is a king that can do something like that. Otherwise, you can just find anyone anywhere else. This week, we're looking at the early life of this king that Matthew says is so fully worth our time, and we're looking at the early life of him and his family, and his parents in particular. Now, we're going to be skipping over verses 16 through 18 in Herod's genocide of the children in Bethlehem. You're welcome. Merry Christmas. It's my gift to you, but we'll talk about that next week. So, Happy New Year. We'll see you then. Um, But his early life, as this passage shows us, is not certainly what his parents would have expected. It's not what any of us would expect. It's very different, and it is much harder when we get into the details of what it would have meant. And yet through the difficulty, we come to understand more and more both of what his life is going to mean and how we make meaning of the difficult parts of our own lives. And so I want to get at that greater understanding of his life and our lives by talking about three things, how life is different for Joseph and Mary, how Joseph and Mary trust God in the dark, and then finally, how life is different for Jesus. But before we do that, let me invite us to pray one more time and ask God to be present here. Let's pray. God, we bring ourselves before you again, having gotten to sing of the good news of the hope of Jesus, that someone would come and change things for us, someone that would would make everything different. And God, this news can be hard to hold on to. It can be hard to see as real. It can be hard to see as valuable. I want to acknowledge that for, for my own hearts, for the hearts of all of us here, there are parts of who you are, parts of your plan and your story and, and your essence that are just hard for us to grasp. And yet the promise of Christmas is that you would come near in a way that we could relate to, that you would help us make sense of what to us is incredible, in, unfathomable. And so I pray this morning that, that more than my words, that your spirit would be here making sense of who you are to these sisters and brothers here with us this evening. And so I pray that you would come now by your power, Holy Spirit, that you would dwell among us as that God with us, that we might know that you are who you say you are, and that there is hope to be found in you. In your name we pray, amen. 
Well, if you have uh, a Bible, we'll be going back through the text. If you don't, there should be one that looks like this in the pew in front of you. And feel free to have that open as we go back through things together this evening. But we're going to be talking about how life is different first for Joseph and Mary. Life is certainly different in this passage than they would have imagined for themselves. But before we can get even into the difference that they live through, we have to remember that this is already after life is drastically different than either Mary or Joseph ever thought their life would be. Neither of them ever expected to end up in the pages of Scripture. Neither of them ever expected to have what happened to them happen to them. Mary certainly would not have expected. She wasn't a little girl writing in her journal, I, I just dreamed to one day be the mother of Jesus, right? This is not what she is expecting to do. She is not expecting to miraculously conceive the Savior of the world through the intervention of the Holy Spirit and didn't plan on taking on the, the painful reputation that would come along with that because people just would not understand. Because everyone would think, yeah, right, Mary, we know how babies are made. And you did that without a husband. We know your story. She didn't plan to take on that kind of life in her small town community. It says that Nazareth, the town that she was from, at its peak had a population of 480. That's a small town. I don't know if any of you have come from a smaller town than that, but that's pretty small. Everyone is going to know your business. Mary didn't plan in a town where everyone knows your business to have this be her story. Joseph certainly didn't plan to marry a woman who would have always had that reputation, who would have always believed to have been a woman who cheated on him, or to be the earthly father of God incarnate. That certainly wasn't in the playbook for Joseph the carpenter who was just minding his own business. They were already living a very different life than either of them ever would have expected when they are warned, verse 13, to flee their home because Herod is out to kill what he perceives to be a rival to his power, this baby king, Jesus. And it's easy to move right past this part of the story because it's so familiar, it's part of songs, it's part of passages. But I want to slow down and try to really understand what that meant for them so that we can see what it would mean for us. Because first of all, fleeing to Egypt meant so many things that we can just gloss by. Verse 14, they are told to go to Egypt. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, in that one act, become refugees. They become immigrants. They become those who don't belong in this other place that's far from home. They're political refugees, in fact, because they are wanted by a local ruler who is intended to try and kill their child and certainly would have killed that child if he found them and probably would have killed them, too. They're physically in danger. They're not just fleeing because they've gone through a famine, because they're going through a societal breakdown. They are on the run because they are being hunted. They are political refugees in a country where they don't speak the language, where they don't have rights. It also meant that in that they had to leave everything that's familiar to them. People didn't travel like we do today. It wasn't like Joseph and Mary were on holiday and vacation to Egypt every other year and they had a favorite place to eat and they loved being on the beach. That, 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 that didn't happen. This wasn't a place that they knew. Going to Egypt, verse 13, meant going somewhere unfamiliar to become residents now. Likely without friends or family to connect with there. They are just on their own. They haven't been together that long. They don't even know what's going on after this. 
So they've become refugees. They've left what's familiar, and they are doing that by taking a long, dangerous journey. Part of why people didn't travel was because, one, it was difficult, and two, it was dangerous. This was a long journey that they were taking in a time when you didn't have Uber, you didn't have cars, you didn't have an easy way to travel where you could be there in a few hours. One commentator, R.T. France, explains it would have been at least 150 miles from where they were in Bethlehem to get to the border of Egypt at that time. And that's without even getting into parts of the country that had larger Jewish populations where they might feel somewhat at least at home. So they're traveling a minimum of 150 miles in a time where you are walking most of that. You are sleeping who knows where, maybe on the side of the road, with a toddler, with a toddler. Mm. Okay? You are tired for all the normal reasons, and now you're tired because you were on the run. You're not sleeping well. I don't know if any of the parents in the room here could identify with those times where you're not sleeping well, but your marriage has not just been this effusive, glowing time of praising one another and saying how much you love each other. It is a time where you are in the trenches. You are under immense stress, and you are not even sure what's coming next. You don't even know how far off you are. You don't have a GPS. There is not a road sign that says 93, 10 more miles until you get to the interchange. There are no signs set up there that they're reading for a long time. They don't know what it's going to take. They're tired. And once they get there, they have to make a whole new life for themselves. They don't know how long they're going to be there. They don't know how long it will be until Herod dies. You're setting up shop in a new place where you don't know how long you're going to be there. You're told you're, you're, you're going to need to come back, but you don't know when that is. You're not really sure how you're going to make a living. You have to figure all that out. Do we put down roots? Do we, do we live as ready to leave? Do I just get a job where I can leave at any time? Do I try to establish myself more? It's hard to live like that. It is hard to not know what's coming next and be so exhausted from what's been behind you. Their life is stressful, sad, exhausting, and uncertain. That's what this life would have been like for them. Maybe you can identify. Maybe in your past. Maybe right now. Maybe in some sense life feels deeply uncertain for you. You don't know what's going to happen to your health to the health of someone that you care about. You don't know what's going to happen with the relationship that you do or don't have, a relationship with a family member that is or isn't going well. You don't know how things are going to turn out for you financially with what's around the corner. You're uncertain. Maybe life feels stressful for you right now. You've got bills coming due, and you're not sure how you're going to pay them. You've got too much work to do, People have been let go, and now it just seems like it's you. Maybe the problem is too big for you to handle by yourself, but it feels like you're the only one that's going to respond. Maybe you feel sad. You're missing someone at this time of year. You're missing seeing them around you're missing something that you used to have that you don't have anymore because life has changed for you in a certain way. You don't have the money you used to have. You don't have the mobility you used to have. Maybe you are lonely and wishing that you had connections that you don't. Maybe you're exhausted on top of all those things. You're just completely emotionally, physically out of gas, 
and you don't know how you're going to start 2024 that way. If you feel that way this evening, I want you to see that you are not alone. You are not alone in here, and you're certainly not alone here. Because this was the experience of Joseph and Mary. And it was their experience, I want to say this clearly, it was their experience at Christmas, right? At the coming of the king. What you expect Joseph and Mary to feel under these circumstances is stressed, uncertain, sad, and tired. That's what you would expect them to feel under these circumstances. At this time, that's what they feel. And there's nothing in the text that would suggest that that God was calling them to do anything except feel what would be normal to feel under those circumstances. It doesn't say, and then God gave them some special grace where they didn't feel tired at all. They were joyful. They were singing. They were just trust in the Lord, too blessed to be stressed. It doesn't say that. It's, It's so likely that they were feeling all those things. But there was nothing wrong with feeling all those things. And that more than that, they were exactly where God was leading them, which was to feel all those things. The text gives us no sense except they were just following what God called them to do. They're not in the wrong. They are where they're supposed to be, and they're feeling these things. It doesn't seem like God expects them, doesn't seem like God expects us not to feel stressed and uncertain and tired and sad. It just seems that he is calling them and calling us to trust him in the midst of all that. God isn't asking you to not feel what you feel at Christmas. He's only asking you to trust him that he's in all that with you, even if you can't possibly imagine what he is doing. And that brings us to talking about how how Joseph and Mary in this life that they didn't expect, how it was so much different than they could have imagined, trust God in the midst of the darkness that they're going through. Uh, it, It would have been hard for Joseph and Mary to trust God in all this. Because the text does not say that Joseph and Mary understood that this going to Egypt, that this coming back and settling in Nazareth was all part of God fulfilling his promises and his plans for his people. As verse 15 and 23 would point out, that those were the the things that Matthew could see that God was doing through this. It doesn't say anywhere that God shares that with Joseph and Mary. Matthew sees it because he's been with Jesus because his eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit and he can see what God has been doing through time, but but they don't have that vision yet. They don't know what all this leaving and going back is about. They don't understand. There is so much that they would not have known. They probably don't know how long, like we've already said, they would be refugees in Egypt. They don't know how long they're going to be away from home. They don't know anything independently about when Herod would die or when God told them that if it was actually true, that it it was going to happen or that it had happened. They had to trust that that was actually going to take place, that God was telling them something that was true enough that they could go back in safety. They likely didn't know why God would let it be that, that Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, where they would have been less known, 
where it would have been a bigger town where they could have lived more without the reputation of scandal from Mary following them and Joseph all their lives. They didn't know why God wouldn't let that work as a new home for them, why they needed to go back to their small, painfully close town. They wouldn't know why they would escape death only to come back to shame, only to come back to feeling like outsiders in your own town. It's hard to trust when you don't know all that. The text gives us no impression that they had some supernatural knowledge of how these things were going to work out. God didn't pull back the curtain to show them all these things. Matthew is doing that for us to connect the dots, but we don't know that they knew that. It's hard to trust God when you don't know, when you are stressed. And the text suggests that despite that, They do keep following God's leading. They go to Egypt. They become refugees and trust him. They come back from being refugees and trust him. They settle back in their small town. And they do all that in the midst of the uncertainty and stress and sadness and exhaustion. How are they able to do that? Well, it seems if we look at the text that that they are getting help. They aren't getting all the knowledge. They're not getting all the details, but they are getting help. Angels had been speaking, leading them. God was revealing directions for them to go, but not all the wise that would go with those directions. And he's giving them confidence to keep them going, telling them about the promises that would come, but not necessarily the full scope of everything he was doing. It seems they're able to keep going to trust God in the dark because God was giving them what they needed to trust him in the dark. Matthew at several points makes it clear that if God didn't intervene, we see that in this passage, in the passages before, that they not only would have done the wrong thing for the right reasons, that they would have been done for on their own, that they would have missed all this. But God was intervening. He was helping him. They're trusting him because they have the help of God to trust him. This is what God does with us. He's not calling you to trust him in the dark and giving you absolutely nothing to do it. He's not calling you to follow him and giving you no supply for that. Even though life is hard, this is not to say that Christianity makes it so that everything is easy. When you follow God, it all makes sense. You get it. The picture is clear. I have energy. I'm excited. No. So often the Christian life is, I'm sad, I'm exhausted, I'm just weary. I don't know if I can keep going. And yet, there is something in me that makes me take the next step. God is not calling you to do all this on your own. He is maybe calling you to do it, but not on your own. And you might say, Yeah, it was easier for Joseph and Mary because you can trust God more easily when an angel is speaking to you, when something that is otherworldly is in your face and you see it and other people aren't going to believe that you saw it, but you saw it and it changes you. It's easier to trust God when that happens, when you see something supernatural, something that changes your mind, changes your categories. Even if you can't explain it and you become one of those crazy people, I saw it, it, I can't explain it, but I saw it. Even if that happens, you feel like, yeah, that, that would make it easier to trust. Maybe I would still question myself, but maybe it would feel easier. But ultimately, Scripture tells us that we, without seeing those things, have more, not less help, more help than Mary and Joseph had. 
We have something more supernatural going on for us when we believe because we have the Holy Spirit. Not speaking from the outside in a dream, but Scripture says that when you believe by grace through faith, God dwells with you. His Holy Spirit incarnates you, lives in you. And that means God himself is dwelling in you, which is an immeasurably greater help than the angels that God has made. And that means that when we face darkness similar to what Mary and Joseph faced, when you're already tired and God throws something new at you, you have a help for the dark too and a greater help than Mary and Joseph had. There is help for you as you face the darkness, a help greater than angels. Even though we might want to see those things, God tells us it is so much greater. If I am with you, the one who is and who was and who is to come, if I am with you, you don't need an angel because you have me who made the angels. If I am with you, you can walk into the darkness because I have made the light. If I am with you, you can face the sadness and uncertainty and stress and pain because I am the one who gives love and connection and relationship. It doesn't matter what you don't have if you have God. Not that those things don't hurt, but you have something that animates everything else in your life. You have a help for the darkness. And that happens because of what we'll talk about in our last point here, which is how life was different, not just for Mary and Joseph, but different for Jesus. We have a different help because life was different for Jesus. Life wasn't different just for Mary and Joseph, but for this promised king too. It doesn't say that Mary and Joseph fled and they left Jesus hiding. It's not like it was with Moses, when Moses' parents couldn't hide him anymore and they put him in a basket and they put him in the Nile, just hoping that somehow God would spare him. There's no separation. Jesus is going with Mary and Joseph to live as a political refugee in a place where he is not naturally going to know the language or the customs. We saw that last week, this, this promised king would move the stars, would move everyone around him, make them come into orbit for, around him, and yet even for him, the one God would call his own son, verse 15, even for that kind of king, the most powerful king you can imagine, life on earth would look like being uprooted, living on the run, and being a refugee. He would have to leave the place, the people that he most immediately came to save first. He would have to leave home too. You see, his life would be changed by being this person. It wasn't just changing the lives of those around him. Being the Christ would not just affect them, it would affect him too. See, God is not like a typical ruler or a king where what happens to those around him or her, what happens to their staff, what happens to their family, all that's meant to buffer them or they keep an arm's distance from that so that they're not impacted by that, so that they stay powerful, so that they stay in control, so that they stay feeling the way that they would want to feel. Typical leaders create a buffer between themselves and the things that would be hard for them. They let others serve their power, their agenda, their comfort. But Jesus is different. 
You can't deny that in the Gospels. You may not like the way that it talks about being supernatural, but you can't deny that this kind of king is different, that the way he relates to people is different. Even though everything would be said to be revolving around him, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he lets himself be made to revolve around it. He lets himself get pushed around by a guy who, as we'll see later, is going to die in just a couple years. God eternal lets himself get pushed around by a hothead, arrogant, violent person who will not last more than a couple years. He lets himself get pushed out by that kind of person. Lets himself be chased and running away. Matthew helps us see that that's because he's coming to the world as something so much different than any other king. That though he is this kind of king, that though he is this kind of God, he is not here to serve himself. He comes not to be served, but to serve, as Matthew would later say, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kind of king that Jesus is coming as at Christmas. He is not coming as one who would draw all things to himself out of self-interest and self-service and to the shrinking of all that is in you, but he is one who would come to give completely of himself to the last drop so that you who were around him, who are not this king, might be elevated to enjoy the life and the family of this king. And shockingly, he does that not for his favorite people who just adore him and love him and are all about him, but for we who in our stress, uncertainty, sadness, and exhaustion so often to turn just to cheap, short, sad alternatives that we find over and over again to be empty and hollow and more expensive than we wanted them to be and so much less satisfying than we hoped they would be. He comes to be that kind of king for us. And yet rather than abandon us for all the ways that that we would just simply let him go away, that we would rather not have him in the picture, for all the ways that if you can imagine yourself being at your family Christmas gathering and having someone say, I'd rather that you just walk out of here and never come back. Though we treat God that way, he doesn't treat us that way. Rather than abandoning us for all that, he lets himself be sent away to die outside the city like an unprotected political refugee betrayed and stamped out by his own people so that we, his unfaithful people, could stay. That's the king that you can trust in the dark. That at your worst times, at your worst self, he would go so that you could stay. You can trust him in the dark because he is out there with you. Because he has gone into the deepest darkness first. Because he lets it affect him too. He lets it make him a refugee and a wanderer. He lets himself wait in the dark, even the darkness of death, even for days on end. Because he came to be not God served by us, but God who serves us. He came to be God with us, Emmanuel, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He is in it with you. He is for you. He has already been there. That's the God that you have at Christmas. 
the God who can be in the ups and the downs. And so by way of application, I want to encourage you to do just one thing as we start to wind down our service together this evening. I want to encourage you to find him in the dark. This is the king who goes out into the dark with you, ahead of you even. He gets rejected and chased out with you. He moves back into environments where we feel shame. He goes there with you. He lives under the pain of a bad reputation, under threats and pain. He does that with you. And so look for him there in the darkness. Because as painful as it is, the dark is so often the place that he most wants to meet us. I've found this true in my life more recently, that so often the place God wants to meet me is the place I least want to meet him. But it's the place where I can most clearly hear his voice, where I most clearly know my need of him, where he draws me closest. And it's not that, that because I know he's there, the darkness stops hurting or being confusing or stressful. But if he is there, then I have a light that the dark cannot touch. And that is a very different power. When it doesn't matter if the lights go out because you have a different light. It's not dependent on circumstances. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your energy, your pedigree, how smart you are, how likable you are. It is just dependent on him. So as we get ready in a few moments to light the Christ candle at the end of our service tonight, I want you to see the light that goes with you in the darkness. And that light is going to pass to you by candle. I want you to take that light that goes out into the darkness with you. If you don't know him, if you have been far from him, I want you to take the light that goes out with you into the darkness. Because it is so eager to find you there. Let's pray. We'd like to leave a little time for you to reflect in your hearts about the things we've just been talking about, maybe thanking God that he goes out into the dark with you, confessing the ways that you don't want to trust him in the dark, maybe. Maybe asking God to find you in those dark places. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would hear these prayers and that by your grace, you would answer. In your name we pray, amen.